Hello, and welcome to the Nauticast podcast, the one true chapter-by-chapter podcast going through a song of ice and fire. I'm one of your hosts, Emmett, also known as Poor Quentin. And I'm your other host, Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. And welcome to the 215th episode of the Nauticast, titled Underworld, an analysis of A Storm of Swords' Sansa 6, in which Littlefinger, the protagonist of the story, shows Sansa around his beautiful estate before the woman he loves shows up to whisk them all away to a happy ending. Which would be great if any word of that was true. Especially the part about Littlefinger being the protagonist of the story, when it's so clearly Liza Aaron. <laughs> I'm so glad she's back, our favorite character, to grace the stage until falling from it in the very next Sansa chapter. So, our spoiler warning, as always, prepare to be spoiled for all five A Song of Ice and Fire novels, the three Duncan Egg novellas, any histories, interviews, Winds of Winter sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones and House of the Dragon, the TV shows. Anything and everything. Our question this episode comes from our patron, Michael B., who asks, Has anyone realized that Littlefinger could be a three-eyed crow? Peter has a near-death experience with Brandon, like Bran's fall, and his Mockingbird self-styled symbol says a lot. And that's interesting. I'm always, I'm always on the hunt for more uh, Bloodraven protege, since I uh, love the theory that, that Euron is, is one of those. I think if it's anyone in the Vale, though, my vote would be Sweet Robin. What do you think? Oh, that would be great. Um, like, he's also broken in his own way. Uh, like he likes Brandon. making people fly. He's up there at the top of the mountain. You know, it's kind of got the Blood Raven vibe. I don't, I, you know, I don't think it's actually true, but I think if it's if I'm going to go in on someone in the Vale being a secret Blood Raven protege, my vote's Sweet Robin. Yeah, I think that's good. Um, as for this question, I don't think Littlefinger is obviously the three-eyed crow. Um, he is trying to serve that purpose in a clearly political and non-supernatural mystical realm um, in the sense of kind of being the guy behind the scenes who's trying to puppet everyone else. Um, and mm, I like that. That's, mm-hmm. that's about the extent of the metaphor that I can draw out. He has a stark child as a protege. Um, but, you know, he's trying to accomplish things and he's like, fighting the war he thinks that needs to be fought. It's just a completely personal, individual war for his own glory. Um, you know, maybe Bloodraven has some of that, you know, selfishness in him too, a little sure. bit still, but... Uh, I think, yeah, he's the, the political equivalent of that kind of manipulator. And I do think that Sansa and Littlefinger, I think, are the, are the main characters who I think are deliberately the most distant from the magical side mm-hmm, of things. Mm-hmm. I think you see that even in this chapter when Littlefinger, like, makes fun of the local prophet guy. Uh, in his part of the Vale. I think they are supposed to stand in contrast to Bran and also to Arya, who gets involved in a lot of different kind of magical things. John, even Tyrion, who's really also kind of political, secular-minded, runs into that weird, uh, weird uh, backwards reverse bridge thing that happens in A Dance with Dragons. He gets that taste of the magical world. Sansa, I think, even though her character has gone through obviously a lot of evolutions from uh, the pitch letter, which doesn't mention Littlefinger, uh, one thing that has stayed constant is that Sansa is, uh, in part, our eyes on the, the political side of things. The, part, the parts of Westeros that would be the same if dragons had never been there and if the White Walkers never came back. And I think that's, that's, that's deliberately so. But I think there's also – George plays with a lot of the same symbols over and over again. And I think they don't always mean a, a literal connection. I just think he – bird symbolism just works in a lot of different ways. It can be the mystical crow-raven side, but also the uh, the mockingbird side of Littlefinger, you know, the – I think, isn't the Mockingbird who, like, puts their eggs into other people's nests? Isn't, I think that's the Mockingbird. I remember reading, like, a comparison of Littlefinger to that, being like, he's, you know, he sneaks into your, your home, your family, your castle, and take out, and takes over. So it's a, a bird symbolism in common, but just different bird. Yes, yes. <laughs> different bird, different idea, I think. So, thanks to Michael B. for the question. If you want to ask us questions, we are forced to answer here on the Nauticast podcast. You can head on over to patreon.com slash ASOIAF, where our patrons get benefits including early access to our regular episodes, exclusive episodes every month, and the chance to ask us questions at the top of our regular episodes. 
but we are here today to talk about A Storm of Swords, Sansa 6, so let's jump into the synopsis. Sansa climbs onto the deck of the Merlin King, with the help of Lothor Brun. Sansa has to keep reminding herself that he's a knight now, because he really, really doesn't look like one, with his plain clothes and plainer face, although she notes that he's definitely strong enough to be a knight. The land nearby is bare and bleak, but it looks like paradise after days spent struggling through storms at sea. Several men died keeping the ship afloat, and while Sansa took refuge in her little cabin, it wasn't much of a refuge. She was sick the whole time, and haunted by memories of Joffrey clawing at his throat as he died. She also feels bad about Tyrion. He did nothing, she told Littlefinger once when he paid a visit to her cabin to see if she were feeling any better. He did not kill Joffrey True, but the dwarf's hands are far from clean. He had a wife before you, did you know that? He told me. And did he tell you that when he grew bored with her, he made a gift of her to his father's guardsmen? He might have done the same to you in time. Shed no tears for the imp, my lady. That's an interesting interpretation. I'm being generous by calling it an interpretation. Sansa is still seasick and feels gross besides, but Littlefinger, naturally, is a morning person, like he wasn't annoying enough already. He tells her that they'll be going ashore here. Sansa wants to stay on board until White Harbor, but one little problem with that. The ship isn't going to White Harbor, and so neither are they. But, my lord, you said, you said we were sailing home. And there it stands, miserable as it is, my ancestral home. It has no name, I fear. A great lord's seat ought to have a name, wouldn't you agree? Winterfell, the Eerie, River Run, those are castles. Lord of Harrenhal now, that, that has a sweet ring to it. But what was I before? Lord of Sheepshit and Master of the Drearfort? It lacks a certain something. I guess we gotta give this castle a name too. The Dickfort, Castle <laughs> Creepy, the Leaning Tower of Incels. Littlefinger feigns distress and asks if Sansa thought they were going to Winterfell. Yeah, why would she have thought that? It's not like the Woody Allen of investment scams specifically told her they were going home. To be fair, Littlefinger is right that Winterfell is not exactly open for business at the moment, and the rest of the North is not in great shape either. That, however, doesn't mean Sansa wants to stay here at the boring rock retirement home. Thankfully, Littlefinger likes it here even less, having been born here. They're only here to meet Lysa, who, in case we'd forgotten, is coming to marry Littlefinger. Wed? Sansa was stunned. You and my aunt? The Lord of Harrenhal and the Lady of the Eyrie. You said it was my mother you loved. But of course, Lady Catelyn was dead. So even if she had lived Peter secretly and given him her maidenhood, it made no matter now. So silent, my lady, said Peter. I was certain you would wish to give me your blessing. It is a rare thing for a boy born heir to stones and sheep pellets to wed the daughter of Hoster Tully and the widow of John Arryn. I, I pray you will have long years together and many children and be very happy in one another. It had been years since Sansa last saw her mother's sister. She will be kind to me for my mother's sake, surely. She's my own blood. And the Vale of Aaron was beautiful, all the songs said so. Perhaps it would not be so terrible to stay here for a time. Bad news, Sansa. About Lysa being <laughs> kind, that is. Not about the view, that is great. You'll get a great look at it when Lysa dangles you over the mountainside. As they row ashore, a handful of people come out of the tower. And I do mean a handful. There's a little girl, there's a middle-aged woman named Kella who gave birth to the kid as she apparently does most of the brats around here. Then there are a couple of old men, Umfred the steward and Brian the captain of the guard, although the rest of the guards are all dogs. Finally, there's Grizel the housekeeper, who leads them through the piles of sheep shit up to the tower. It feels even smaller on the inside, like a reverse TARDIS. Each floor is one room. The servants and the dogs live in the kitchen on the ground floor, the next floor up is the hall, and the floor above that is the lord's chamber. Above the hearth hung a broken longsword and a battered oaken shield, its paint cracked and flaking. The device painted on the shield was one Sansa did not know. A grey stone head with fiery eyes, upon a light green field. 
My grandfather's shield, Peter explained when he saw her gazing at it. His own father was born in Bravos and came to the Vale as a sellsword in the hire of Lord Corbray. So my grandfather took the head of the Titan as his sigil when he was knighted. It's very fierce, said Sansa. Rather too fierce for an amiable fellow like me, said Peter. I much prefer my Mockingbird. I guess you can't call Littlefinger fierce, but I really wouldn't call him amiable either. Oswell brings supplies from the Merlin King, and Littlefinger offers Sansa a cup of wine. Only one of many red flags in this chapter. Here's another one. He was studying her over his own goblet, his bright gray-green eyes full of... Was it amusement? Or something else? Littlefinger calls for some fruit, and then tells Sansa they need to come up with a new identity for her. Varys will soon have spies looking for her across Westeros, and so they'll be telling Lysa and her people that Sansa is Littlefinger's bastard daughter. She wants to call herself Catelyn, but Littlefinger says that's a little too obvious, and settles instead on his mother's name, Elaine. Sansa is still hung up on the whole bastard thing, and would rather be the true-born daughter of some gallant knight in Littlefinger's service who died on the Blackwater. Another tiny little problem with that. Littlefinger has no gallant knights in his service. You've met the Kettle Blacks. So instead, Sansa, I mean Elaine, will say her mother was the daughter of a Bravosi merchant prince. She met Littlefinger at Goldtown and died giving birth to Elaine, who was left in charge of the faith until she reached out to her father. He fingered his beard. Do you think you can remember all that? I hope. It will be like playing a game, won't it? Are you fond of games, Elaine? The new name would take some getting used to. Games? I... I suppose it would depend. Before Littlefinger can inevitably name drop the Game of Thrones, Griselle shows up with some fruit, bread, and butter. Littlefinger chooses a pomegranate. Sansa, who knows her mythology, chooses a pear instead. Littlefinger launches into his supervillain monologue about the players and pieces in the Game of Thrones, saying that Ned didn't know how to play, while Cersei thinks she's a player when she's actually a pawn, in large part because she doesn't actually know what to do with power when she gets it. Everyone wants something, Elaine, and when you know what a man wants, you know who he is and how to move him. As you moved Sir Dantos to poison Joffrey, it had to have been Dantos, she concluded. Littlefinger laughed. Sir Dantos the Red was a skin of wine with legs. He could never have been trusted with a task of such enormity. He would have bungled it or betrayed me. No, all Dantos had to do was lead you from the castle, and make certain you wore your silver hairnet. The Black Amethysts. But, if not Dantos, who? Do you have other... pieces? You could turn King's Landing upside down and not find a single man with a mockingbird sewn over his heart, but that does not mean I am friendless. Littlefinger summons Oswell and tells Sansa to look closely at him. She doesn't get it at first, but when Oswell grins and mentions three sons, Sansa realizes that Oswell is Big Daddy Kettleblack. Littlefinger dismisses Big Daddy Kettleblack and tells Sansa that he made sure the unholy trinity of Kettleblack's sons got hired by both Cersei and Tyrion when the Lannister siblings were looking for swords in their eternal war on each other. Sansa asks if one of the Kettleblacks poisoned Joffrey, but nope, turns out the boys aren't all that reliable, especially after Osmond got his white cloak. He tilted his chin back and squeezed the blood orange, so the juice ran down into his mouth. I love the juice, but I loathe the sticky fingers, he complained, wiping his hands. Clean hands, Sansa. Whatever you do, make certain your hands are clean. Duran Martell should sue, only he gets to make obvious blood orange metaphors. Sansa runs out of guesses, and Littlefinger finally mentions that someone adjusted Sansa's hairnet that night. Sansa is horrified by the thought, insisting that Olena wanted to take Sansa to Highgarden and marry her to Willis. Littlefinger says Sansa was lucky to escape that marriage, as Willis is so pure of heart that he's boring. But Olena isn't boring, says Littlefinger, about as high a compliment as he can pay. Now we learn more about Littlefinger bringing Tyrion's offer of a marriage pact to the Tyrells, which happened off-page in the last book. 
Littlefinger says Olena was clearly concerned about Joffrey's behavior, and while Littlefinger praised Joffrey to her face, his servants told the terrible truth to the Tyrell servants. Turns out Littlefinger also manipulated the Tyrells into naming Loras to the Kingsguard. So not only did Olena kill Joffrey in order to protect Marjorie from harm, she was also trying to prevent Loras from becoming another Kingslayer. Now, Littlefinger says, Marjorie will be forced to marry Tommen, and the coalition that won the Battle of the Blackwater will stay together. For a little while, anyway. Sansa did not know what to say. She had liked Marjorie Tyrell and her small, sharp grandmother as well. She thought wistfully of Highgarden with its courtyards and musicians, and the pleasure barges on the Mander. A far cry from this bleak shore. At least I am safe here. Joffrey is dead, he cannot hurt me anymore, and I am only a bastard girl now. Elaine Stone has no husband, and no claim. And her aunt would soon be here as well. The long nightmare of King's Landing was behind her, and her mockery of a marriage as well. She could make herself a new home here, just as Peter said. Unfortunately, Sansa quickly gets bored with her new home. There is nothing to do, especially when it rains, which is most of the time. Her only friend is an old blind dog, and even when Littlefinger takes her on a tour of his territory, it barely takes up an afternoon. The highlights are a geyser, a rock marked with a seven-pointed star by the first Andal settlers, and a cave where a prophet once announced that Littlefinger would be a great man. I guess it depends on your definition of great. Finally, Lysa shows up, with a few maids, a dozen knights, and a handsome young singer who might just seem familiar to the reader. Sansa is shocked by the sight of Lysa, who looks older than Catelyn despite being the younger sister. Littlefinger kneels and proposes, and Lysa seems thrilled with everything but Sansa. I mean Elaine. A bastard, she heard her aunt say. Peter, have you been wicked? Who was her mother? The wench is dead. Don't you talk about Catelyn that way. Plus, she's not dead. She just got better. Lysa tells Littlefinger that the Lords of the Vale are giving her trouble. Those who aren't trying to marry her are trying to get her to declare war on the Lannisters. But she doesn't care, as long as she can marry Littlefinger, here and now. Littlefinger is on board with the marriage part, less so the here and now part. He was planning on getting hitched at the Eyrie, so as to force all those lords to watch him leapfrog them. Lysa, however, has been waiting so long for Littlefinger's not-so-Littlefinger to make her scream. And who boy does she ever keep that promise. After a quick ceremony and wedding feast, it's time for the bedding. And the tower is just too small for anyone to avoid overhearing it. Even Marillion's singing can't overpower Lysa's dirty talk. Sansa went down the steps and out into the night. A light rain was falling on the remains of the feast, but the air smelled fresh and clean. The memory of her own wedding night with Tyrion was much with her. In the dark, I am the knight of flowers, he had said. I could be good to you. But that was only another Lannister lie. A dog can smell a lie, you know, the hound had told her once. She could almost hear the rough rasp of his voice. Look around you and take a good whiff. They're all liars here, and everyone better than you. Speaking of smelly liars, Marillion shows up to start drunkenly hitting on Sansa. She tells him that she's a virgin and that her father, as in Littlefinger, will punish Marillion, but neither of those matter to Marillion, who was about to assault her when someone else approaches. Sansa heard the soft sound of steel on leather. Singer, a rough voice said. Best go, if you want to sing again. The light was dim, but she saw a faint glimmer of a blade. The singer saw it too. Find your own wench. The knife flashed, and he cried out. You cut me. I'll do worse if you don't go. And quick as that, Merlin was gone. The other remained, looming over Sansa in the darkness. Lord Peter said watch out for you. It was Lothor Brune's voice, she realized. Not the hounds, no, how could it be? Of, of course, it had to be Lothor. Sansa definitely has Sandor on the brain, as he shows up in her nightmares, replacing Tyrion in her wedding bed. In the morning, Littlefinger summons her to his own wedding bed and tells her that he has revealed her true identity to Lysa. He then leaves the ladies alone to catch up. Sansa stood by the foot of the bed while her aunt ate a pear and studied her. I see it now, 
the Lady Lysa said as she set the core aside. You look so much like Catalan. It's kind of you to say so. It was not meant as flattery. If truth be told, you look too much like Catalan. Something must be done. We shall darken your hair before we bring you back to the Eyrie, I think. Darken my hair? If it please you, Aunt Lysa, you must not call me that. No word of your presence here must be allowed to reach King's Landing. I do not mean to have my son endangered. Okay, well then you probably shouldn't have married Littlefinger. Just saying. <laughs> Lysa asks Sansa about her marriage to Tyrion. Sansa says she was forced into it against her will. Lysa says the same was true of her and John Aaron. They only got married so Lysa's father would join Robert's rebellion, and Lord John smelled like old cheese, unlike Littlefinger with his double mint gum and Dracar Noir. My father said he was too lowborn, but I knew how high he'd rise. John gave him the customs for Goldtown to please me, but when he increased the incomes tenfold, my lord husband saw how clever he was and gave him other appointments, even brought him to King's Landing to be master of coin. That was hard, to see him every day and still be wed to that old, cold man. John did his duty in the bedchamber, but he could no more give me pleasure than he could give me children. His seed was old and weak. All my babies died but Robert. Three girls and two boys. All my sweet little babies dead. And that old man just went on and on with his stinking breath. Well, at least you killed him for it. He's stinking up there in heaven now. Lysa next brings up the Red Wedding. She cries for Catelyn and pulls Sansa close, only to grab her by the wrist and demand to know if she's still a virgin. Poor Sansa, she just cannot get away from this question. Sansa says that Tyrion never insisted on consummation because he could always visit a sex worker. You don't know the half of a kid. Lysa's just angry that she didn't kill Tyrion when she had the chance. She's also still pissed off that Catelyn took the Blackfish with her. I'm pretty sure he went by choice. No one tells the Blackfish what to do. He has made that very, very clear over the years. Lysa says that she plans to make Littlefinger the new Lord Protector of the Vale, which I'm sure will go over swimmingly with all those aforementioned lords who hate his ass. Lysa also mentions that she never liked Joffrey, and that she believes poison can be an honorable weapon if used for the right reason. Wink wink. Sansa will understand that when she becomes a mother. And speaking of which, how about Sansa marries Lysa's son, Lord Robert Aaron, a.k.a. Sweet Robin? Thinking about that just makes Sansa tired. Again, kid, you have no idea. I can scarcely wait to meet him, my lady. But he is still a child, is he not? He is eight, and not robust. But such a good boy, so bright and clever. He will be a great man, Elaine. The seed is strong, my lord husband said before he died. His last words. The gods sometimes let us glimpse the future as we lay dying. I see no reason why you should not be wed as soon as we know that your Lannister husband is dead. A secret wedding, to be sure. The lord of the Eyrie could scarcely be thought to have married a bastard. That would not be fitting. The raven should bring us word from King's Landing once the imp's head rolls. You and Robert can be wed the next day. Won't that be joyous? It will be good for him to have a little companion. He played with Fardis Egan's boy when we first returned to the Eyrie, and my steward's sons as well, but they were much too rough, and I had no choice but to send them away. Do you read well, Elaine? Septim Ordain was good enough to say so. Robert has weak eyes, but he loves to be read to, Lady Lysa confided. He likes stories about animals the best. Do you know the little song about the chicken who dressed as a fox? I sing him that all the time. He never grows tired of it. And he likes to play hop frog and spin the sword and come into my castle. But you must always let him win. That's only proper, don't you think? He is the Lord of the Eyrie, after all. You must never forget that. You are well-born, and the Starks of Winterfell were always proud. But Winterfell has fallen, and you are really just a beggar now, so put that pride aside. Gratitude will better become you in your present circumstances. Yes, and obedience. My son will have a grateful and obedient wife. And that is the synopsis for A Storm of Swords, Sansa 6. What would you think of this one, sir? 
This chapter is a pivot for Sansa, her first chapter removed from King's Landing since very early in A Game of Thrones. Her chapters will continue to focus on court intrigue and the performance of power and femininity, but that takes on a whole new flavor. The court now shifts to the Vale, and the performance takes on a new form. She's no longer Lady Stark, queen consort-to-be and hostage daughter or traitor. Or rather, she's still most of those things, but those now have to be sublimated to a new performance, that of a runaway, of no one, of Elaine Stone. Most of all, this chapter reestablishes Peter Baelish in our story. It's quite literal, Littlefinger origins. The reader is reintroduced to his character by seeing his oh-so-humble beginnings, something I'm excited to dig into as the proto-capitalist of Westeros is given a backstory reminiscent of real-life proto-capitalism. And of course, we are reacquainted with his slick maneuvering and chilling approaches towards Sansa. Creepy finger rides again. <laughs> Must he? Does he have to? <laughs> Yeah, in some ways, this does feel more like a, a Littlefinger and Lysa chapter than a Sansa chapter. Like how the early Davos chapters were really more about establishing Stannis. Sansa's chapters in this book, they remind me of the Star Trek movies. What if I just moved on from that? No explanation. Just They just do. <laughs> Sansa's chapters are like the Star Trek movies. No, and the, the famous thing about the Star Trek movies, the uh, especially the earlier ones, they have the alternating structure of which ones are, are good or better. Like, you know, uh, two, four, and six are the ones mm -hmm, that everyone likes. Mm -hmm. One, three, and five, not so much. Sansa's chapters are like that, but but reverse. Like the odd, the odd numbered chapters are the ones everyone loves. Uh, Sansa 1, where she meets uh, the Tyrells. Three, where she gets married. Five, where she runs from King's Landing. And then seven, where we get the Lysa uh, reveal. And then she's thrown off the mountain. And the the the, the even-numbered ones are, are not as great. That doesn't mean Sansa 6 is bad. Just that it's it's more of a, a grab bag of different elements than it is one coherent thing. Like, yeah, we shift from Littlefinger behind the music uh, to Lysa's arrival. And we, we check in on how Sansa's thinking and feeling every so often. Like you said, this chapter has a job to do. We're transitioning into a whole new part of Sansa's story, in terms of not only the setting, but also her character arc. And we will see even more of that in her next and last chapter in the book, which is a stone-cold masterpiece. Adventure stink. Seems Sansa's voyage up to the Fingers was no more pleasant than Quentin Martell's across the Narrow Sea, though I think, in the long run, Sansa Stark will be made of sterner stuff. Not to diminish the story or growth that came before, but this does feel like Sansa whisked away on adventure for the first time, in ways we've seen Arya, Jon, and Bran more recently embark on. And though there's no shortage of men and knights who helped whisk her away, from Sir Dantos to Littlefinger to Lothar Brune, Sansa will eventually be saved not by some valiant hero, but by her own damn self. Speaking of Lothar Brune, he's a side character I've come to appreciate in recent years, thanks a lot to Girls Gone Canon. He's a distant cousin of House Brune of Brown Hollow located in Cracklaw Point, though the main family branch rejected Lothar's wishes to be incorporated back into the family. House Brune historically has sided with Rhaenyra's Blacks and Rhaegar Targaryen during Robert's Rebellion. Lothar himself has shown up at the Hand's Tourney, as seen in Sansa 2 A Game of Thrones, King Joffrey's named a tourney, another Sansa chapter, her first in A Clash of Kings, and again in Sansa's last A Clash of Kings chapter where he is rewarded for his actions at the Blackwater, including earning the name Lothar Apple Eater, in honor of capturing and killing some Fossaways. Lothar will go on to be an increasingly important character in the Sansa Littlefinger storyline, seemingly trusted by both of them, and even has a brief hero moment at the end of this chapter, turning away Marillion's drunken advances. With Brune, we are yet again seeing violence as a means of upward social mobility, similar to how we talked about Braun a few chapters back. After acquitting himself well at Turdy's, his performance at the Blackwater earned him a knighthood and a keep, and he would take a modified version of House Brune's arms for his sigil. It includes something Apple-related, according to George R.R. R. Martin. 
In this, we see Brew not only move upwards, but also is able to reclaim some of his family name and heritage through his success in battle. And that in itself is upward social mobility with familial bonds stitching together the feudal system we have here in Westeros. Ramsay Snow will be rewarded in similar ways later on in the story. So Sansa is on the move, which she hasn't been since early in the first book, but even so, the, the literal movements in her story stay vertical, not horizontal. She climbed down that cliff in her last chapter, this chapter starts with her climbing the ladder to come on deck, and George spends more time here describing the vertical tower than the horizontal landscape. Partially, this is just a running dick joke, like the nickname Littlefinger. <laughs> the tower represents Littlefinger's dick, with which he fucks Lysa in this chapter, but it's clearly Sansa he wants, as he wanted Catelyn. But the constant emphasis on vertical movement, towers, ladders, cliffs, is also a visual representation of the Game of Thrones, climbing the ladder of chaos as high as you can before you fall. And we will see that again, of course, when we get to the Eyrie, Lysa's impregnable fortress atop the world, in which she can hide from everyone along with her son, but she lets Littlefinger climb up inside, and then he knocks her all the way down. And yeah, Lothar Brun is also climbing the ladder. He's the one literally giving Sansa a hand up at the start of the chapter. He's moving on up in parallel to Littlefinger. And he's like Bronn, but he's less he's less flashy. Like we see Bronn get better and better clothes over the course of this book. Lothar Brun stays with his his plain ordinary clothes. More substance, like a like his strength. In a way he has he has some in common with Davos, too. So let's move on to Littlefinger. As we've mentioned before, he's been off page for a long time now, and he's going to be ascendant in the saga as we head into a feast for crows and eventually the winds of winter. With Tywin Lannister soon coming off the board, we're going to see a lot of other antagonists rise in prominence all over the map, from the Boltons in the north and Euron in the west, and Littlefinger here, of course. And George is quick to reacquaint the reader with exactly who Peter Baelish is. His first moments here have him throwing out lies about Tysha and Tyrion, the he gave her to his guards when he became bored, casually twist Tyrion into a monster when he, we actually know he's a victim of that scenario. It is actually rare to hear about Tyrion's first marriage outside of a Jaime or Tyrion chapter, so there is some ambiguity here about whether Littlefinger is regurgitating some popular rumor, or if this is Littlefinger's own version of events. Because I always presume malice with Littlefinger, I'm going to go with the latter. <laughs> You're not, not, not ever going to go wrong presuming malice with Littlefinger. And this builds on what we're seeing in the Tyrion chapters, the, what's going on in his trial, the most distorted, bad faith interpretation of events imaginable. And I think it ties into George's interest in storytelling that we also see in the, in the ancillary materials. Perspectives filtered through bias, ignorance, and time. This is how Tyrion will be remembered. Remember how angry that made him uh, in the last Tyrion chapter that he only be remembered for killing Joffrey? Well, what if he's remembered uh, for for uh, assaulting Tysha, for giving her to uh, all his father's guards instead of what actually happened? And like you say, we don't usually hear other people talking about Tysha. Given how few people were involved and given Tywin's interest in keeping it quiet, it always seemed plausible that no one outside Casterly Rock really knew about it. I doubt Tywin or Jamie ever talked about it, and the way Tyrion told Bronn, it really felt like the first time he was talking about it to anyone else. So the gossip probably came from one of the non-Lannisters on the periphery of the scandal. The drunk Septon, the soldiers, the steward Tywin mentions, spreading the truth just like Littlefinger's servants did with the Tyrells. Who knows who talked to Littlefinger, Littlefinger, who knows what they told him, and he absolutely has an interest in turning Sansa against Tyrion. He's saying, you know, don't pity him, focus on me, I'm the center of your life now. But honestly, if we if we pretend that we never had a Tyrion POV, if we only saw him through Sansa in this book so far, we might believe Littlefinger here. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We don't call him Creepyfinger without cause. It's true. Um, and he immediately asserts that aspect of himself here, too, wrapping his arm around Sansa and offering her wine. 
He's encroaching on her, not to the extent that Marillion does later on, but he's clearly violating her space and trying to quote-unquote loosen her up when he can, calling her a woman now, implying all the patriarchal duties that would entail. It's like that analogy about boiling frogs. He's turning up the temperature very slowly so that the fact that Sansa is being boiled is hopefully missed by her. But, in my opinion, she's very much noticing if she's not able to put words to it yet. Exactly. She she knows something is off. She just doesn't have the experience to, to say what. Especially because it's all filtered through the performance of chivalry. As George writes it, his sympathetic arm, his innocent eyes, he's playing a role from Sansa's stories. He's the savior. He knows how to do this because he loved those stories too. They motivated him to challenge Brandon Stark to a duel, and to keep that duel going even as it became very obvious he was losing. What Littlefinger learned is that it's better to be the storyteller than it is to be a character. He wanted to be the puppet master, not the puppet. And what that comes down to more often than not is lying his ass off. First about Tyrion, and then, as it turns out, about their destination. He feigns surprise when Sansa is, is uh, unhappy about getting off the boat here. Oh, oh, you thought we were going to Winterfell? <laughs> yes, asshole, of course she did, because you said you were taking her home. Now, the confusion is 100% deliberate on Littlefinger's part. He wanted Sansa to think she was going to her home so that he could then disappoint her. That sense of disillusionment, as with his lie about Tyrion, it creates an emotional gap that he can exploit. Like so many adults manipulating children, Littlefinger acts as though his lies are actually tough love. Helping Sansa grow up, you need to feel the loss of your childhood home so you can go out there and make your adult home. And yeah, sure, that is true to a certain extent. Like we saw that when uh, when Bran left Winterfell, that chapter we both love at the end of Clash, where he, he felt like he's loving it, but also, in a way, letting it go. But that doesn't mean it was a good thing after all for Ramsay to sack Winterfell. <laughs> Dealing with horrible things is part of maturity, but the world will throw plenty of horrible things at you on its own. It doesn't mean we should welcome or create them in order to spur maturity. Like, that's that's Jigsaw logic from the Saw movies. That's that's John Doe from Seven logic that I'll, I'll create the horrible things just so you appreciate life more. Fuck that. And anyway, Littlefinger isn't actually interested in helping Sansa grow and change on her own terms. Only his. He wants to be her home. He wants to control her under the pretense of liberating her, and when Sansa thinks his eyes are full of amusement or something else, well, that's what the something else is. It's been a little bit of time since we've gone George R.R. R. Markson, so <laughs> I wanted to talk about the pastiche of imagery that defines Peter Baelish's origins. Littlefinger is a proto-capitalist, and this dreary, desolate hellhole on the fingers full of simple, dull folk I'm sure has us all thinking of... England. Naturally. Just kidding. I, I kid my former colonizers. But <laughs> industry and many of the systems that would give rise to the eventual capitalist hegemon in our own world took root and or took off in Britain, despite the island not being particularly rich with natural resources or arable land or dense with people. But it did have sheep. Upwards of 5 million sheep at the end of the 13th century, and land that was previously used for meager farming was easily converted into grazing land for them. Wool production would become immensely widespread. As Matt Chrisman and our friend Luke over at We're Not So Different have said, England was basically a petrostate, but for wool. Royal taxes on the wool market would account for almost two-thirds of the crown's incomes by the end of the 14th century, providing money that would be used to fight wars, like the Hundred Years' War and the War of the Roses. Someone should probably write a fan story based on one of those. Good idea. <laughs> Later on, that money would be used to build the bureaucratic apparatus of the emerging dynastic state and absolute monarchies of the late medieval and early modern period. 
Landowners converting their farmlands to grazing lands meant ejecting the tenant farmers who worked that land, which gave rise to the landless laborers who would eventually begin to congregate in cities looking for work. We're about half a millennia away from the rise of the proletariat from this moment in history in our own world, but this was a necessary step along the way. The other relevant aspect of Littlefinger's origins is his family hailing from Bravos, the planetos analog to Venice, which was also once a dreary, swampy land that found economic viability through an emerging middle class of trade and finance. Debt financing instruments and double-ledger bookkeeping, things Littlefinger himself appears to be a Westerosi innovator of, took root in Venice. I don't think George is writing about the Westerosi transition from feudalism to capitalism, but there is a clarity of purpose in Littlefinger's character that makes every aspect of his story fit like a glove. That includes the story that Littlefinger tells about himself, of a common boy and a son of a merchant rising to be Lord of Harrenhal and eventually the Vale, a rags-to-riches story worthy of Horatio Alger. That goes into that storyteller aspect that uh, Emmett was getting at just a few minutes ago. And even Littlefinger's meager keep here on the fingers has a Calvinist touch, almost ascetic, as it's quite small with little ordainment. The broken sword and battered shield perhaps symbolize the old way of doing things, while Littlefinger's finance capital represents the new way, a juxtaposition made manifest by Littlefinger taking the Mockingbird as a sigil, as opposed to the more violent imagery associated with the Titan of Bravos. And the ship that got them this far is sailing on to Bravos. Mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. almost like we're going back in time as far as Littlefinger is concerned through all the all the areas he lived in before he got to King's Landing. And from here, he climbs higher than ever before. The rags to riches arc you talked about is vital because what George is doing with Littlefinger is basically parodying that idea, revealing it as a constructed narrative like any other, one which Littlefinger is exploiting. First of all, Littlefinger was not technically actually common born. Although he acts like he was, he acts like he's on the same level as Kella and Byron, etc. He's really not. He may be on the lowest rung of the nobility, but that is still nobility. Like when Davos thinks about how at a couple generations from now, my grandsons will start to assimilate. A little finger is a, a generation down the process from mm-hmm, someone mm-hmm. like Davos. And yet, we see here, as with the Burrells that Davos meets in A Dance with Dragons, that nobility does not necessarily translate to wealth. Littlefinger would have been better off financially if he was the son of a great merchant, like the woman he invents to be Elaine Stone's mother. But while wealth and political power frequently overlap, they're not synonymous. Peter Baelish the merchant would have had more money than Peter Baelish the lord's son, but only the latter could have ever gotten close to the Tullys of Riverrun, and he used those connections to improve his political status. He had to be master of coin before he could be a great lord. And he's moved up the ladder not thanks to courage and diligence and those Horatio Alger values. Littlefinger did it through corruption, manipulation, and taking advantage of the ignorance of his patrons. Along the way, that pure teenage love he felt for Catelyn has been twisted into something selfish and cruel, something that allows him to control Lysa. Even while the actions Littlefinger takes as part of his master plan point to the political and economic future of Westeros, he himself, as an individual, is stuck in the past in the sense that he's trying to hijack the old system rather than rebel against it, and in the sense that he's obsessed with his personal past. We see those, those Gatsby echoes that often come up with Littlefinger. Like George has said, everyone is the main character of their own story, and for me, I think the real appeal of this chapter is George is showing us how Littlefinger thinks of himself that way, while never letting us forget the artifice and projection of it. So getting back to the story, Sansa isn't upset that Littlefinger brought her to England. She's upset that she isn't going home to Winterfell, which presumably is Scotland. Littlefinger is quick to say everyone you love is dead and the North is at war, that 
you know, Winterfell isn't home anymore, which actually had me thinking a lot about the end of Arya 12, where Sandor Clegane almost apologizes to Arya about her mother or tried to express sympathies, something to kind of bridge the gap that the trauma has created for Arya. Compare that to Littlefinger weaponizing the Stark tragedies just to push forward his own goals. And by isolating Sansa from her home, by stripping her of her name, he forces himself into a position where Sansa can trust only him, so to speak, a dynamic we also see play out with Daenerys and Jorah in this book. And I gotta say, that age gap between the two is pretty much spot on as well. And speaking of new names... Hello, Elaine Stone. Welcome to the party. <laughs> George is, I'd say, already deep in his name change era with Arya's uh-huh. many monikers and even the Ramsey Reek deception at the end of A Clash of Kings, but he's going to become a total sicko for that shit in A Feast for Crows <laughs> and A Dance with Dragons, renaming chapter titles with these pseudonyms, and having characters further explore their identities through masks or from a distance. And as I'm sure we'll talk about probably more in Feast, that Arya as Cat and Sansa as Elaine makes up two halves of Catalane, aka their mama, Catelyn. Elaine Stone even gets a new backstory, one appropriate for the bastard of a businessman. And I actually want to give Littlefinger some props here. He mentions pious bleeding, which calls back to the sheep imagery from earlier in the chapter. Sansa takes the takes this role-playing as a game, which is music to Littlefinger's ears because then he gets to talk about the Game of Thrones. I honestly think these are the shower conversations Baelish has with himself, like how exactly he's going to explain his whole conception of power to whoever will listen. Cersei, for example, seems more of a piece than a player to Littlefinger on the game board, even though Cersei herself believes to be otherwise. This I do think pretends what's to come, as I think Sansa will transition from piece to player before Littlefinger is fully aware that transition has been made. Though I think that brings up a disagreement I have with Littlefinger. I'm not sure being a piece or player is an absolute thing in any given Uh moment. Players can be moved across the boards themselves by other players, and there may be a context that a piece becomes a player or vice versa, especially with the tangled and often contradictory realities of feudal institutions. Ned may have made some mistakes, but I don't view him as a hopeless player. He was just not quick enough to realize that Cersei had flipped the game board over before he could do anything about it. And Cersei did flip that game board with a lot of help from Littlefinger, let's not forget. Yeah, Littlefinger's talking like, oh, just the system itself brought Ned down. Like, no, you made the call. (laughs) You could have made a different one. And yeah, I agree. Everyone is both a piece and a player because the game board is fractal. You zoom in, you zoom out, you'll find the power dynamics at work. There is no absolute top nor absolute bottom just plans inside plans inside plans as they say in dune and i I think littlefinger is right that cersei's problem cersei has a lot of problems but cersei's big (laughs) her big political problem is that she doesn't know what to do with power when she gets it she's the proverbial dog chasing the car we already saw that after robert's death and ned's subsequent downfall cersei took charge but all she did with it was sit around waiting for tywin to come rescue her from her failure to contain robert's brothers Okay, to be fair, she fired Barristan. Real (laughs) galaxy brain move there. Real line on the resume there for Cersei. And we'll see that again in A Feast for Crows. I love in that book that the the Tyrells just can't quite believe how Mm -hmm. short-sighted and self-destructive Cersei is. That's why she keeps getting away with stuff, because the Tyrells are good at this, and it doesn't occur to them to predict the actions of someone bad at this. (laughs) In fact, she's so short-sighted and self-destructive that it messes with Littlefinger's plans. As he says in A Feast for Crows, I have to speed things up now. Cersei's bringing this down a lot quicker than I thought. So if he's reacting to her moves, who's the player and who's the pawn? Littlefinger says you can predict someone's actions and therefore control them if you know what they want. That's who they are, he says. Your identity is rooted in your desire. 
The ultimate example, arguably, is Lysa. She wants Littlefinger, therefore he has power over her. We see that to a large degree in this chapter. But he doesn't completely control her. She almost kills Sansa, which that would have ruined the whole master plan right there. And Littlefinger never applies his insights to himself. He never asks who might have power over him. He never realizes that by revealing his desires to Sansa, he's giving her power over him. She is, at least at a basic level, learning how to move him. So let's talk about Littlefinger's moves in the Game of Thrones so far. You know, he's got Sir Dantos, who is Littlefinger's lesson on how each fool must be assigned the appropriate task. Good enough for the hairnet, not good enough for the actual poisoning. Oswald Kettleback, who, uh, who Sansa recognizes in the chapter, reveals the three hidden knives that Littlefinger still has in King's Landing, a.k.a. Oswald's uh, sons. And they are also likely feeding him all the juicy intel, especially as Cersei relies on the Kettleblacks more and more. And speaking of juicy, Littlefinger is literally chomping on a blood orange while explaining all this to Sansa, presaging the bit we'll get in the water gardens in A Feast for Crows. Here, he's saying he loves the taste but hates the sticky fingers. He likes to eat but won't be caught getting his hands dirty. For Littlefinger, the oranges go beyond the martial metaphor of having someone carry out your violence for you, a la Olena Tyrell doing the actual poisoning, which is also revealed here. It's about what you say publicly and privately, swinging sweet songs about Joffrey in your formal capacity but having your underlings spread the sour truth about him through side channels. Littlefinger carries this metaphor on to utilizing singers to praise the glory of the Kingsguard, basically doing a low-level inception on Mace Tyrell to have him <laughs> compel Loras to join it. Not that difficult to incept Mace Tyrell, but <laughs> no, still, easiest. good work. You only have to go two levels down. You don't even have to get to that third. <laughs> then you get like, just, you hit like bedrock, or there's like, you know, TBD <laughs> signs everywhere. Right. Elena all the way down, Mace yes. Tyrell, two levels. In each of these cases, Littlefinger is constructing a wall of plausible deniability which allows him to escape much of the risks and blame that come with his plotting. I'd say another aspect of his proto-capitalism, pooling risk to minimize anything bad befalling him. So if his plans fuck up, everyone else has to pay the price. Not unlike, say, a myriad of financial crises we've seen in these last 25 years. <laughs> Peter subprime mortgage bailiff, everybody. <laughs> and once again, Littlefinger doesn't seem to realize that by you know, telling Sansa all of this, he is breaking down that wall of plausible deniability. Cersei doesn't see Littlefinger as a threat, and neither, as far as we can tell, do the Tyrells. Therefore, he can keep getting away with it. But while Littlefinger doesn't mind playing the servile vassal to them, he lets that mask slip with Sansa because he wants to brag. He wants everyone else to underestimate him, but part of his master plan is getting Sansa to, if anything, overestimate him. By giving away the game, Littlefinger sets himself up to lose the game. He can't help himself because of the resentful pride that drove him to play on this level in the first place. And George draws from mythology to frame this relationship. Griselle brings up some fruit and Littlefinger offers Sansa a pomegranate. In Greek mythology, Hades, god of the underworld, uses pomegranate seeds to trap Persephone down there. When she eats them, she's tied to Hades. The pomegranate uh, symbolizes uh, marriage in this case. And that's what Littlefinger is going for, something to, to bind Sansa to him. And I do think long-term his plan is to probably marry Sansa, or at least if someone else says to marry her, Littlefinger will actually be sharing her bed. I think that's what he's going for. But George stands that idea on its head when Sansa refuses the pomegranate, signaling she'll ultimately be able to escape Littlefinger in his, his uh, attempts at seduction. And uh, I love, I just love how George stages the kettle black reveal to, to undercut Littlefinger. Like you get this, this big buildup and then he drops the bomb. Holy shit, it was Littlefinger all along. You know, it sums up his, his MO. Cersei and Tyrion were fighting each other. The nobles were fighting each other. Neither one noticed how Littlefinger was taking advantage of both of them. And the little finger casually says that I can't really trust them anymore anyway because they've just gotten used to what the Lannisters can give them and I can't. 
whoops, it completely undercuts the reveal itself. And I think that's that's deliberate on George's part, that he's he's deconstructing the mastermind to a certain extent here. Yeah, in that case, it's very effective chapter placement because we just had uh, Osmond Kettleblack in the Jamie chapter previous, and you could get that sense of him. And then to just kind of have Oswell and Littlefinger confirm it in the following chapter, it really works well. I come back to Sansa's thought about how she thought she could be safe here, about how Elaine Stone has no claim and no husband. Uh, but Sansa, at least for now, doesn't really understand that even under this fake name and this hidden place, she's still a part of the game, just kind of with a new character build. It will become painfully clear by the end of this chapter, and then again in A Feast for Crows, that while she hides under Elaine's name, it's her Sansa Starkness that is animating Lysa and most of all Littlefinger's broader ambitions. And Sansa is caught in between in terms of her POV on the, the class dynamics here. Sansa's main character flaw, built in from the very beginning, is that she's a snob, especially relative to Arya. Sansa has an elitist attitude when it comes to questions of class and social status in general, bastardy in particular, because Catelyn slammed that into her head regarding Jon. And we see that here. Like, why does it matter to Sansa to be thought of as Littlefinger's bastard relative to being the true-born daughter of, of some knight somewhere? Like, they're both lies, right? The giveaway is when Sansa wishes she could specifically pose as the daughter of, she says, some gallant knight in Littlefinger's service. She is still in story brain mode there, overlooking the fact that Littlefinger is, like, his whole thing is not being the kind of guy who has gallant knights. That's not how he <laughs> operates. He has the Kettleblacks, the least gallant non-knights around. Same thing with Lothar, right? He doesn't look like a knight should. It's that Sansa is still uh, getting rid of that idea. It still kind of has its hooks in her just a little bit. And George inspires a change in Sansa's attitude by forcing her to play the role of a bastard, someone she might have looked down on. Now she's the one who has to face that bigotry from others. Uh, we get, before Lysa shows up, we get the, the uh, hilariously quick tour of uh, Littlefinger's territory, of the Baelish territory. I love what he says, mine own small folk. <laughs> Again, that kind of line, just kind of satirizing his hero's journey. Like, that's a deliberately stilted artificial line that, like, you wouldn't act, mine own small folk. It reminds me of um, the movie Excalibur, the, uh, the, the crazy trippy like greatest hits of Arthuriana movie from the 80s uh and that has that has a lot of lines like that where you just have to the actors have to sell it like they're just like the first person to ever say these lines <laughs> like when, when Arthur first meets Lancelot in that movie and Lancelot's bragging about how he's defeated everyone and Arthur says that is a wild boast you lack a knight's humility and he just has to sell that line and that's that's the kind of thing like Littlefinger and George is like making fun of here when he says mine own small folk uh we also see in his territory we get that the seven-pointed Andal star that the Andals who came over uh, the narrow sea we don't um george has a pretty i think uh brutal view of the andals they always seem like the assholes in the backstories compared to the first men who made the deal with the children of the forest uh this is you know it's a takeover from across the narrow sea kind of like Littlefinger coming from bravos but this was a uh, this was a mass one this was a real change this wasn't just one guy this was everybody and that 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 seven-pointed star it's a whatever you think about the andals it's an expression of faith which is something Littlefinger clearly lacks like the same deal with that the long gone uh, hermit he brings up the flip side of the, the genuine prophets we see in like Arya storyline or Bran storyline, people who actually have magic. This was clearly just a guy who could get paid for saying, you know, random shit to people. No wonder Littlefinger is cynical about that as, along with everything else. Like you see in what is you walk around his territory, why he was never able to come back and be happy here, which was always his option after losing his duel to Brandon Stark. But you can see he was never going to be happy here. So... Eight days later, feel free to drop in a Beatles music key right here. The glorious return of Liza Aaron. If you're like me, ever since the middle of A Game of Thrones, you've been eagerly waiting her return. She's basically the hero of the story. Liza is Zora Heron, as I like to say. Maybe appropriately then, she looks like a ham in her reappearance, as Renly would call it. 
because Sansa notes that, well, Liza looks like shit. While younger than her mother, she appears older, tired, and more clumsy in a way that seems alien to what Sansa expected. And most of all, she's kind of just batshit insane. <laughs> I, I, I am trying to be kind here. Liza mm-hmm. is herself a victim of a patriarchal system between the forced abortophasian she had to take as a child or young lady to the marriage to a much older man and troubled pregnancies, all part of the broader Game of Thrones as John Aaron and Ned Stark and Robert Baratheon rose up against the Mad King, yada, yada, yada. <laughs> I, I do want to refrain from calling her hysterical, namely because of the gendered connotation that comes with it. But there's no denying it. She's batshit insane. (laughs) Back in A Game of Thrones, this podcast analogized the court of Aaron to Alice in Wonderland. It's Queen of Hearts being all judgment first, trial later sort of stuff that perverts what actual justice looks like. Yeah, now we have Sansa as kind of the the Alice in Wonderland kind of POV, the young Mm -hmm. polite girl just lost in this uh, absurd topsy-turvy land where nothing makes sense. And it can be hard to be kind here because George is ruthless in terms of how he writes Lysa. And I do think he indulges in something here that he critiques elsewhere, using physical unattractiveness as shorthand for something being wrong on the inside. Like he literally just critiqued that with Lothor Brune, saying that, oh, he might not look like a knight, but he's got the strength. And then you get this, and it definitely feels to me reading this like George wants you to recoil from her weight and her heavy makeup and that these are meant to communicate Lysa's mental instability as if her words and actions would not do that (laughs) because yeah they already do and that being said this isn't just George taking pot shots at an easy target the ruthlessness has a point because like you say George never ever lets you forget how Lysa got this way and I think when you step back and look at Lysa's story as a whole how it intersects with Catelyn's story and kind of the more uh, major characters it becomes one of the most potent critiques of the social norms of Westeros, particularly in terms of gender. George, I think, at least in his writing of these books, has an unsentimental view of pain and suffering. You can still see the traces of, a, I guess, a more Catholic attitude toward pain, that, that transcendence to the point of eroticism. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like, Beric Dondarrion's suffering definitely makes him saintly. But it also makes him less of a person, because suffering does not ennoble you. It's just suffering. It's just a gap between you and happiness. We don't get much time with Lysa, which I would bet is why George falls back on that shorthand, but it also makes it impressive just how deep he dives into her psychology, the extent to which he shows, in large ways and small, how her behavior has been shaped by what happened to her. Lysa makes you cringe. She's embarrassing to read about and mortifying to be around. She's someone you pity, but the kind of pity that converge on contempt if you're not mm-hmm. careful with it, mm-hmm. because of how transparently needy she is, how desperate for attention and affection... She might look older than Catelyn, but she acts younger. Disturbingly so, as Catelyn noted, like she's still a child. Her development, like so much of, so many members of the Roberts Rebellion generation, was frozen in adolescence when she lost any semblance of control over her life. The giggles, she's saying, oh, poo to this, oh, poo to that, calling everything wicked. She's an exaggeration of the feminine identity Sansa once aspired to be. Now she's seeing what happens when all that girlish behavior, charming and an actual girl, a child, becomes in adulthood a painful pretense, a thin layer of butter scraped over too much bread. Lysa thinks, Lysa so clearly thinks this is how Catelyn was. She thinks this is why Littlefinger loved Catelyn. This is why Hoster always seemed to favor her. This is what happens when your social role is revealed as a cage. When the father you trusted betrayed you, when the husband you had to marry in the wake of a forced abortion never gave you the warmth you needed. And I think it's important that John Aaron is never framed as a monster. He wasn't abusive. It doesn't seem like he was even cold, but he always kept himself out of remove, Catelyn thinks, undoubtedly because he was guilty about how Lysa came to him. That guilt of a good man did not help Lysa. 
It just compounded her suffering because it left her alone, isolated like she's in one of her own sky cells. In this chapter, Liza is most unhinged by her desire for Littlefinger. But it makes sense, right? Maybe the last time she was happy was as a youth with Peter and Kat, and after decades of being a piece, she can now be with someone she actually wants to be with. Both of them, you know, they hold prestigious titles and able to build a kingdom for her son. No more suitors chasing her solely for her claim, which is something that Sansa herself hoped to find respite from. But this union for Littlefinger is very purely political, even if he is exploiting the personal to get there. The veil is just another step on his story, and is not only and he is not only hoping to gain power, but also earn himself further legitimacy as a High Lord of Westeros, especially since he doesn't have the noble lineage of the other great lords. This is why he's initially insistent about a public wedding. He needs it to be a performance that is witnessed by all the vassal lords of House Aaron. The lords already think he's an up-jump schemer, and they are well aware Liza is not all there. But all the same, a public event held in the Court of the Eyrie would be a major PR coup for Littlefinger. But Liza is insistent that she wants to wed in bed right there and then, and as much as Littlefinger doesn't want to, he acquiesces. No need to blow up his whole plan right here, he's just going to have to adjust on the fly to temper Liza's swings. Which is in fact a prelude to what happens at the end of this book, with Littlefinger having to improvise by um, chucking Liza out the moon door and playing a slightly different game in A Feast for Crows. Yeah, the improvisation is the key. None of that is in the master plan. So much for being able to control people when you know what they want. George does a great job establishing the dynamics here that are going to explode in the next Sansa chapter. You can just see the tension building, because Lysa needs to be able to tell herself that Littlefinger loves her as much as she loves him. At some level, she knows that's not true, as she admits in Sansa's next chapter. So the strain of maintaining that fiction takes a toll, especially when Littlefinger keeps saying stuff like, can we get married in public so it counts? Lysa really doesn't care about the Game of Thrones, because I think of how brutally clear her father made it to her that she is a piece and not a player. Her political power doesn't really mean anything more to her other than her ability to keep her son safe and lure Littlefinger to her eventually. Ironically, that lack of concern with politics is precisely what makes her hard for Littlefinger to control. She's not willing to play the public part, because that's not important to her. In her mind, she's playing out a romance, the kind of gauzy teenage story that leaves out political realities, because it's only the two of you. Surely the point, Lysa thinks, of us getting married is that we have defeated politics. We've crossed those social borders that kept us apart. But the bitter reality, like you say, is that this is, is just another move in the game for Littlefinger, and the romance is, is so clearly all in Lysa's head. This wedding becomes another point of reflection for Sansa, who's been cursed by hellish weddings this entire book. While she has no good memories of her own marriage to Tyrion, she does express with some relief that she was spared some of the bawdiness of Westerosi customs, something Catelyn herself was thinking back back in her last chapter in this book as well. Sansa does cop that, you know, if she actually liked her groom-to-be, though, maybe she'd be down for just a little bit of raunchiness. Um, The one thing I can't get over here is just Littlefinger watching Sansa as the bedding ceremony happens and as the Mm -hmm. other ladies address her. It just... The creepiest thing of all the creepy things Littlefinger does. No, no, no low bar. Um, and it's just super creepy. And I think along those lines, uh, Liza's coital yells might be the most horrifying shrieks in fantasy literature since the Nazgul. <laughs> Again, embarrassing to the point of making you want to kill yourself rather than yes, keep reading. Yes. <laughs> and it's coming back to it. I feel like it's so embarrassing, not just because uh, sex noises, but also just because of 
of the gap between what's happening inside Lysa's head and what's happening outside of it. Again, this is for her, this is like the most romantic moment of her life and the redemption of everything she's been through. And for everyone else in the tower, it's just a joke. An overcompensation amplified by how tiny his dick is. I mean, his tower. <laughs> and yeah, everyone else includes Littlefinger. Like that he is he is performing for Lysa here. That, that creepy smile at Sansa. Like you know that when he's up there with Lysa, he's thinking about her and Catelyn probably. So both Lysa and Littlefinger are projecting, which cuts through any remaining illusions Sansa might have, I think, about marriage at this point. So Lysa's having the time of her life. And meanwhile, Sansa reflects on the most important men in her recent life, Tyrion Lannister and Sandor Clegane. Neither cut the image of the heroic prince of her dreams, but at the same time, they are the few who have spoken kindly to her, or if not kindly, then at least more truthfully. This is not the only time this chapter where her mind will wander to either Tyrion or Sandor, as these two impressed upon her much during her stint in King's Landing. The old sand hound she befriends in the Drear Fort is only going to invoke Sandor Clegane further. Next comes the extremely uncomfortable encounter with Marillion, who tries to drunkenly assault Elaine. This is the one place where perhaps her new name protects her less than that of Sansa Stark. Someone like Marillion would never be so bold as to go for the Lady of Winterfell, but as a bastard, a marginalized position in Westeros, Elaine is more than fair game to the singer. It's also worth pointing out how little fear Littlefinger seems to inspire in anyone. Very few understand the monster he truly is. This is supported by Marillion being like, what's Littlefinger going to do? And this feeds into his whole shtick about hating his hands getting sticky that he talked about while eating the blood oranges. When you remove yourself from the violence done in your name or with your planning, you are not viewed as a threat. And then no one understands who you are or who, what you want, which is basically Littlefinger's whole deal. Figure out what others want, but let, never let anyone know what you want, except, I guess, Sansa Stark. And as we will see, Marillion will learn exactly what violence Littlefinger is capable of in A Feast for Crows. Oh boy, yep. Luckily, Lothar Brune is not far away, and he scares Marillion off, though in this light, he could almost be the Hound. And it is thoughts of the Hound that meet her in her dreams later that night. The season 8 reunion with Sansa and Sandor was very much discussed as part of the discourse, and whether their conversation was in character or properly understood the traumas both had been through, but all in all, I do appreciate that these two characters did circle back together for a brief scene. They are much in each other's minds throughout these books, as Sandor brings up Sansa to Arya as much as Sansa thinks of Sandor. Absence makes the heart grow fonder. And yeah, this is the part of the chapter where we focus the most on Sansa herself. And it doesn't really advance her arc so much as summarize it up to this point, exploring how King's Landing changed her, especially through Sandor and Tyrion. She's not sure how to feel about either of them, and that ambiguity bothers her. Like, Lysa has created a, a narrative in her mind in which Littlefinger is the hero she's been waiting for. There's a lot to ignore for that to be the case, but she's ignoring it. <laughs> Littlefinger clearly thinks of himself as the protagonist of reality on his rags-to-riches arc. There's a lot he has to ignore there, but he's ignoring it. So what does Sansa think about what she's gone through, especially as her ability to ignore things is breaking down? Well, some of it's still easy to categorize, shuddering at the thought of being forced to marry Joffrey. Thank God that didn't happen. But Tyrion is both savior and monster in her mind. He saved her from Joffrey's knights, he spared her the bedding, as she thinks here, but when he said he could be good to her in the dark, she thinks to herself, no, that was only another Lannister lie. That intimacy and vulnerability is frightening. It's easier for Tyrion to purely be an enemy at this point, especially because that might mean she doesn't have to feel so bad about him being framed. Naturally, that makes her think of Sandor, because in his own way, he also told her that it, it could be different in the dark, that no matter what he looked like, he could be a true knight like Loras Tyrell. 
Of course, he said that with a knife to her throat, because George is always interested in poking at the space between romantic chivalry versus abduction and assault. I think you see that clearly in the backstory with uh, Rhaegar and Lyanna and the different ways people think about that. And he does it again here. Marillion suddenly emerges as if summoned by Sansa's daydreams, which is certainly how he thinks about it. Just like Littlefinger earlier, he knows the chivalric script to a T. Let me sing to you with my body. Free me from this torment. Heed your heart. He, he's presenting himself as, I'm the victim of my own my own lust for you, and you need to free me from this cage. This kind of bullshit, this is how he's earned himself a place at court. And like Marillion says, this is how he takes down his enemies. This is how I would take down Littlefinger with a verse. His songs are weapons. And, just like Littlefinger, the reality lurking underneath all that rhetoric is ugly. When Marillion says that Sansa wouldn't want her nice clothes ripped, he is threatening her with rape, every bit as much as Rorge with Brienne. He's just saying it nicer. And Sansa keeps being shown how little that means when the nice words are just a language anyone can learn. But I think George is after something deeper and subtler than just deconstructing childhood fantasies. When Sansa thinks for a second that Lothor is Sandor, that really complicates the scene because it turns it from grim realism back into fantasy. A different kind of fantasy, one led by Sansa rather than Marillion, and it's one that proceeds unchecked into her dreams. Part of Sansa, I think, wants real marriage. Neither the artificial nightmare of her marriage to Tyrion, nor the antiseptic fantasies of her childhood stories, but an adult relationship with sex and sweat and authentic intimacy. And part of her wants that relationship with Sandor, because he is the savior literally of her dreams, the person she wanted to swoop in and save her, save her from Marillion, who is the mustache-twirling villain in Sansa's, fantasy, in Sansa's fantasy, just as he was the romantic hero in his own. But I keep saying part of Sansa wants that, because even as Sansa dreams about marriage, she's dreaming about what happened at Joffrey's wedding, the hideous spectacle of his death, and linking that to the Red Wedding and Rob's death there. So sex and death, violence and romance, they're all swirling together in Sansa's head, and I think what George is saying is... These kind of collisions and confusions, this is this is what the pain of growing up is like. It's exaggerated in Sansa's case because of what she's going through, but those feeling like you're unable to solve those problems, but feeling like you have to, that's what growing up is. The next morning, Liza gets one-on-one -on -one time with Sansa. Gods be good, Sansa thinks. <laughs> she compares Sansa to her mother, Cat, which Sansa, of course, loves to hear, but Liza did not mean it as a compliment. As we'll see, Liza compares herself to her sister quite a bit, who got the better deal out of the Game of Thrones. This resentment clearly burns in Liza, which makes Littlefinger's only cat all the more devastating, that resentment being her last thoughts during her long plunge out the moon door. Yeah, it's that, that horrible truth she's been working so hard to repress, and then it's the last thing she knows <laughs> is it being confirmed to her face. Just like how both Lysa and Littlefinger were pro projecting earlier in bed, they both project Catelyn onto Sansa, just in different ways. And this is where we get the, the flip side of Lysa's character. She is sympathetic in terms of how she's been treated by the men in her life, Littlefinger as well as Hoster and Jon Arryn. None of them gave her what she needed, all of them, uh, I think, manipulated her in different ways. But as with Cersei, what Lysa has gone through has not led her to empathize with other women, quite the opposite. Instead, Lysa sees Catelyn as her competitor, the golden child who got everything and never appreciated any of it. Kind of how like how Stannis talks about Robert. Lysa is often framed as acting out of, out of instinct, maternal instinct, doing everything to protect a sweet Robin or at least keep her close to him so he can't be taken away from her. But what she did to Catelyn took cold calculation. As Lysa reveals in Sansa's next chapter, Littlefinger told her to frame the Lannisters for the murder of Jon Arryn. Littlefinger, as far as we can tell, did that to bring the Starks and Tullys into the war, so he could thrive on the chaos, because otherwise Stannis and or Renly might win the war too quickly for him to exploit it. But Lysa? 
she doesn't seem to care at all who sits the Iron Throne so long as they leave her alone. She lied to Catelyn and manipulated her and her family into this war to get revenge on her sister for a life well lived, for having what she could not. And so often I think we direct our anger not at the true cause of our suffering, but at those who we think haven't suffered enough. In Lysa's eyes, Catelyn has floated above it all. And we know that's not really true, but only because we have her POV. And I do think it's fair to say that Catelyn has, has kind of turned a blind eye to her sister. Like she didn't know what was happening, but she also didn't want to know. And that has rebounded to a degree she never imagined possible. And now Lysa takes that out on Sansa because Sansa looks like Catelyn young Catelyn, and that drags Lysa right back in time, just like how Edric Storm looked like young Robert. So Lysa has to change Sansa's hair, I think less to keep them all safe than to make her less like Catelyn, and to demonstrate control. Here's a version of Catelyn I can dress up like a doll. I can force her to sit there and listen and there's nothing she can do. Not if she wants to be polite, not if she wants me to keep her secret and keep her safe. Liza tells us of her youth and fills in some of Littlefinger's backstory, including how Liza may have helped Littlefinger climb that first rung of the ladder as customs agent in Gulltown. It's worth highlighting here that these customs pros were highly lucrative bureaucratic positions in medieval and early modern society, and would make sense for Peter to catapult from here all the way up to Master of Coin. Even as late as antebellum and postbellum America, the customs agent at New York Harbor was considered the primo gig for kickbacks and, well, just accumulating wealth. Liza compares her own troubled youth with Sansa's travails, being made a piece in the Game of Thrones and having to marry someone not for love, but to shore up succession and alliances. This is Sansa's Mirror of Galadriel moment. Her looking at Liza is a future that has not yet come to pass, but very much could, where she is fully at the whims of the powerful men in her life. A worst case scenario if Sansa doesn't become a player in her own right. And Liza fancies herself a player, thinking her holding back the Vale's armies and food reserves puts her in a position of power and safety in the Seven Kingdoms. Everything Littlefinger said about Cersei thinking too highly of her gamesmanship can be applied to Liza as well. You were talking about how she's able to control Sansa in a way that almost is like she's controlling Catelyn in a way. And I bet you she always felt that peace player difference between her and her older sister, who was very much seemed like more of a player than herself. And now she can kind of reverse that power dynamic through Sansa. The topic eventually turns to Tyrion and whether Sansa had consummated the marriage. As much as Sansa thinks that the reason she is still a maiden is Tyrion's kindness, maybe, she doesn't tell her aunt that. She basically says Tyrion got his kick with sex workers, which just fuels Liza's own preconception of Tyrion as a debauched hedonist incapable of being loved. Liza's not quite able to piece together that what Tyrion actually did was arm the mountain clans against her, which she pretty much just blames on the Blackfish's departure as the Warden of the Gate, or whatever they call that title. <laughs> the point of all this interrogation, of course, is to set up Liza's plan to wed Sansa to her son Robin. Whether this is truly Liza's idea or one little finger incepted into her is unclear. Obviously, it makes sense as a match, but it probably provides some cover if Liza ever gets curious as to why Littlefinger is bringing Sansa Stark into her court under a fake name. Littlefinger is fine with letting Liza fancy all about the Sansa and Robin wedding while he works out his own real plans that do not involve Liza or Robin in the long run. And this may also prevent Liza from harming Sansa, though as we'll see in her next chapter, not quite. <laughs> For Sansa, this is a real out-of-the-frying-pan-and-into-the-fire moment. Whereas she was a hostage in King's Landing and a pawn, valuable for her claim to Winterfell, here in the Vale of Arryn, she's also a hostage and a pawn whose value derives from her claim. 
Just as finding out the Tyrell plot early in this book, hey, remember that, was a wake-up call to her about how the game is played, this chapter makes it clear that she can never escape the game. Not really. It's not unlike Sandor Clegane in the last Arya chapter. He can travel the countryside anonymously and do good hard work for the community, but eventually that name will catch up to him, just as it will with Sansa. In the chapter's final paragraphs, Liza makes clear that she not only wants uh, Sansa to wed Robin, she also wants to sub- subordinate her to him, make her not just wife, but also mother figure as well. For Liza, femininity is collapsing in on itself, all things a woman can be in doing their patriarchal duties. It's a result of being treated horribly all her life, and something she is now projecting onto Sansa in these last few sentences. Yeah, as we'll see when Sansa meets Sweet Robin, wife but also mother figure is is horribly accurate. Lysa has frozen her son's development to match her own. She can't let him experience life because he's all she has left. What if he goes off and leaves me? And she'll control Sansa too. I didn't have any choice in this. Why should you? It's total deflation for Sansa. And I love that she's not even scared, which, you know, as we'll see in the next Sansa chapter, she should, she should be. But she's not. She's just tired. Like she has to go through this whole smiling prisoner gig again. Even while Lysa is using Sansa for her claim, she's denigrating that claim, calling Sansa a beggar. As with Littlefinger, they're controlling Sansa by making it seem like she has no other choice. Lysa lacks self-control. We can see that just in how she rambles on and shifts emotions on a dime. And again, we're seeing that Littlefinger doesn't have total control of her. Why, did, why else does he suddenly tell her the truth about Sansa? Like, like you're saying, he's got his, his reasons maybe for arranging this marriage, for, for keeping Sansa safe. But it's also like, again, your master plan is changing on a dime to handle Lysa. If we come into this chapter thinking Sansa might be escaping her cage, now we see that the cage is a continent wide, and she can't even count on her remaining relatives to let her out of it. There are just cautionary tales left and right, as with Arya. And as like I was saying about Tyrion when he thinks about how he's going to be remembered, you gotta wonder who the younger children are going to be. What are they going to be like to the generation that comes next? You can only hope they're, they're less sad and less scary and less of a cautionary tale. So I'm moving on into a foreshadowing and groundwork. Great little bit of it here in terms of the next Sansa chapter when Lysa talks about poison and she says, oh, I never liked Joffrey. And, you know, they say that poison isn't honorable, but a woman's honor is different. And that's so great because on first pass, you're like, oh, great. Lysa is yet another person who thinks Sansa killed Joffrey. Oh, well. And you're not going to think anything more about it. But on reread, you go, oh, that's Lysa basically confessing to killing John Aaron. Like you uh, said in our uh, episode preview that's out for Patreons, uh, this is kind of George speedrunning Liza's character. And because mm-hmm. he is building to that pretty huge reveal that's literally going to drop in the last couple paragraphs of her last chapter of the last real chapter of this book, not kind of that belong. It is good that we get a little bit of that seated here because um, otherwise it might just be a lot to handle. But at least George is aware that he's where he's building to for the big climactic finish. Yeah, agreed. It's a it's it's a, it's such a great little example of something that stands out on reread, like a neon sign when you come back, uh, knowing what happens next. So, into a theory and discussion, we talked about Lothor Brune a little bit towards the top of the episode, a minor character who kind of becomes more prominent now as the supporting cast in uh, Littlefinger's uh, plans and Sansa's chapters. So, what do you think uh, is, is coming for him? Do you think he's going to stay loyal to Littlefinger for the whole thing, go down with the ship? Um, I, I think he's going to switch camps and join Sansa. I think that eventually, um, you know, we've talked about this before as we talked about bigger changes in the narrative, how usually the new regime carries over some parts of the old regime. And I can't imagine all of Sansa's time at the Vale is kind of going to be chucked to the wind when she, you know, becomes Lady of Winterfell or Queen in the North or whatever. Lothar Brune seems like the right guy to help her transition from Littlefinger Patsy to hopefully Littlefinger Killer in the long run. 
Agreed. He could be maybe part of the the mechanism by which Sansa puts Littlefinger down or turns him over for execution. Maybe Lothar Brune knows some crucial information or just like does not protect him, chooses mm-hmm. to – like how uh, Alistair Thorne stands aside and lets John yes, execute yes. Jano Slint. Lothar Brune might, might make the same move with Littlefinger. And I think you can – yeah, you can see that here just in his um, – his kindness, you know, he, obviously he was told to defend Sansa, uh, but he still does it. There's a great little bit in Sansa's released Winds of Winter chapter right after Harry the Heir is a total dick to Sansa. And Lothar Brun says, Harry the Heir, he's Harry the Arse, he's just some up-jump squire, don't listen to him. And Sansa gives him a big hug. Like a lot of the, the Nada Knights or the, the people who are elevated on the Song of Ice and Fire, not all of them like the Kettleblacks. But Lothar is that, that sweet heart beating underneath that that plain face. So I think I think eventually that'll, yeah, that'll, that'll lead him to choose Sansa over Littlefinger. I think Littlefinger will will die with absolutely no one loyal to him. No peace mm-hmm. is left. No one no one wearing the Mockingbird. No one serving him even covertly. Just him. And that'll yeah. be it. It's perfect for the proto-capitalist to be completely individualized and then failing in the long run. That's exactly what he wanted. The, the proto-American psycho. <laughs> the proto-Patrick Bateman. <laughs> that is Littlefinger. Christian Bale casting. Interesting. Oh, Interesting. that'd be good. That'd be good. That could work. That could work. All right, so that is going to wrap us up for this episode on the Storm of Swords, Sansa Sansa 6. Thank you so much for listening. As always, if you want to drop us a rating or a review on your podcast app of choice, we really appreciate that. helps new listeners find us. You can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F. Our patrons get benefits including early access to our regular episodes, little mini-sodes like many mentioned that uh, we we do at the top of each episode just for our highest uh, Patreon tiers, and also exclusive episodes every month. You can follow us on Twitter, Blue Sky, Instagram, at Nauticast, A-S-O-I-A-F, or shoot us an email at Nauticast, A-S-O-I-A-F, at gmail.com. And you can find me on Twitter and Blue Sky, at Poor Quentin. And I'm Manu, at Manuclear Bomb. You can find me covering the Lord of the Rings over at my brother, my captain, my podcast. Hell yeah. So coming up next on the Nauticast, uh, our latest Fever Dream episode on Chapter 29 of George R. R. Martin's 1982 vampire novel. That's up on our Patreon for all of our $5 and above patrons. Next week, also up for $5 and above patrons, is our next Star Wars episode, third one on Empire Strikes Back. And then next time in A Song of Ice and Fire, it's A Storm of Swords, John 9, in which John is worn down to the bone by the responsibilities of holding the wall. Thankfully, his old buddy Alistair Thorne shows up to let him rest. In a nice cell, that is. It's a story we're all familiar with, being completely exhausted by work and then new management coming in and making it infinitely worse. Somehow, Janos Lint manages to make everything worse. Yes, a, cha- a chapter about John holding out against the wildlings, but not being able to stop the stupidity of the people in his own organization. Mm-hmm. Beautiful setup, really, for John's story going forward. So, thank you again for listening, and we will see you next time in Westeros for A Storm of Swords, John 9.